Oh, the shame that will get. If you've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I'm not playing mind games. I'm talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicio, they'd probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. All right, welcome along to Team 33. I'm Raf Giallo. You can get in touch with us, as always, on Twitter, at Team 33. We're also on Facebook and also on iTunes, and you can find all our podcasts on the Off The Ball website, the News Talk website, and, as I said earlier, iTunes as well, where you can stream, download, and etc. So this week, the main interview is a book called Trailing George Best. It's kind of a different look at his uh, life and career. Um, um, I've been reading that book. It's actually really good. It's an interesting way of looking at his life and career anyway. But mm-hmm. on the line anyway, before we get to all that, is Joe Coffey. Raph, good to be on the phone. Good to be on the phone indeed. And uh, Jonathan Higgins is in studio as well because he has to defend Liverpool's honour <laughs> as well. I think we were, gonna, we were going to <laughs> just basically l- ambush you here. I've just got landed with that earlier in today that I'm just going to be, what is it, the, the lawyer, the barrister and everything for yeah. Liverpool. But we'll be getting on to Chelsea first before that. End of call might be popping in later on as well, if uh, if time allows. But uh, first off, Joe, you wanted to talk about Chelsea. So uh, you have the floor now. And I know the kind of issue is they're in this weird place. They've just lost to your beloved Arsenal. And I'm nobody's quite sure what direction they're going in, in because there seems to be problems behind the scenes. Yeah, I, like it's just it, it, it's just interesting the way... Um it's just interesting the way things have changed for uh, Chelsea in the in the past couple of years. I know, like, I mean, I, I think some, no doubt, some Chelsea fans will, will say that I'm talking nonsense. But, like, they, they, I, I think that, you know, um, Sarri had to come out, came out, obviously, at the weekend after the game and, and criticised the team pretty heavily. Um, but I think that... Uh, I, I think that in many ways, Chelsea would be doing as would be operating about where they should be, maybe even slightly better. Um, like I mean, if you look at the like, if you look at the look at the way it's gone for Chelsea with all the controversy over um, Obram, Abramovich and whether his passport or and the whole thing that his... His visa and that, uh, yeah. His, his visa wasn't renewed and then he had to go for, I think it was Israeli citizenship or an Israeli visa or something like that. And then the stadium was cancelled or put on hold indefinitely. Um, I just, I think the problem for Chelsea is that they're probably not going to be in the market for the types of players they have been in the market. Since Abramovich took over, Chelsea have always been in the market for the top players. You know, if a player was available... It was usually, you know, Chelsea and then uh, yeah. and United and then lately and then uh, and then obviously in the last decade, City going for the player. And now it just appears that, I mean, Chelsea are doing fine in the league. They're 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 if they get into Champions League, I think it'll be very good. Uh, it'll be a very good performance. But the problem for Chelsea, I think, is unless Abramovich decide either they sell the club or Abramovich decides to put a load of money back, starts pumping money back into them again. I mean, I think that their their team is gonna it's going to gradually be eroded in terms of the type of types of players that they sign. Uh, you know, like that hazard to Madrid, I would presume something like that will happen in the summer. And you're kind of going, well, who are they going to get instead of them? I mean, even like 
you kind of go and look at the players they're bringing in now, like instead of the, the money they spent years ago, it's it's Higua, you know, it's Higuain that's coming in, who like is still a very capable player, but um, you just don't hear the big players been linked to Chelsea anymore in the way you used to, and you just wonder where is the club going because. If you have an owner who is not as interested as he used to be and is kind of checked out, you know, it's it's um, while they are like while they while they will be fine, you just can't envisage them winning the league. I mean, I think the problem for Sarri is, is that he wants a certain he needs certain types of players to make his tactics completely work. And unless they make money available, he, he'll find it hard to get those players. I mean, they're in danger with the with the way the stadium is. They're in danger of slipping behind Spurs in terms of revenue, how they boost the revenue. And, and same with Arsenal. Obviously, they 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 if you're just going purely from revenue alone, they earn less than Arsenal. And, uh, and it's just they're they're in a, a, a precarious position, I think, at the moment in that for off the field. I think actually on the field, in my opinion, they're doing OK. But I think they're just in a precarious position in terms of where they go. What will they do for money if Abramovich isn't prepared to pump that money into them? Yeah, and I think Jonathan maybe even that point. Like, I mean, Liverpool have had a few managers over the years, but I mean, how many eras of Chelsea had? I mean, and since yeah. Abramovich has come in, it seems to have been lurching from one thing to another, to another, to another. Even the uh, the interim managers, and I know Rafa used to Rafa Benitez used to hate that term, but even they've probably arguably been some of the most successful managers that they've had as well. Yeah, Chelsea are in a very strange position and, you know, this isn't something that's happened overnight. This has been coming for quite a while now and, you know, they were incredible for for a couple of seasons but then it's kind of, I've ever since really around the time of the Champions League, it's been kind of dwindling down and, you know, they got that initial huge investment which has kept them going and they've, they only needed a couple of signings for a couple of years after that just to kind of keep it a certain level and then they kind of, they've stagnated really altogether mm. and it's fr- really from that, almost that Champions League time. I think Conte's um, his win of the title with them was a remarkable achievement but I think it kind of distorted a lot because that was a very average Chelsea team you know it w- it pretty much was one tactical change going three at the back turned a bad season into a wonderful season for them and you look at the points total that they got that was a, in terms of the standard of football in the whole league there was quite a number of teams in the doldrums that season and like there's been multiple out of the seasons where a similar Chelsea performance wouldn't get anywhere near the title so and then like after that with Conte you know he very much was just waiting around for his P45 waiting around for his compensation the club was stagnating really with him and some of the signings they've made over the years have been quite strange to say the least like they've always had the the buy the younger players just to just to loan them out etc that's been one type of genre but then weirdly they, for me they started signing a lot of players like the likes of Drinkwater Bartley you know average Premiership players like they not really they don't really fit any genre apart from maybe they're they they fit the you know English players for the requirements for that in yeah in, in the I think squad. that's arguably more I'd say Drinkwater probably more so I think Barkley maybe they saw a bit of potential on top of that requirement or being able to fill the homegrown quota that you actually have to have but even on the thing about like buying superstars I don't think they never they never really did it in the way say that you would have thought when, uh, no, when they no, first uh, came in I mean they had Torres which was one which was obviously yeah. painful for yeah, Liverpool fans and then there was Shevchenko which was just the owner Balak as well yeah. Balak and, and Balak yeah Shev. yeah no that, that's another sign where the owner kind of went okay I'm going to play football manager here I'm going to get yeah. these superstars and we look we it's it's come out we all pretty much knew at the time but it's definitely come out afterwards where Marina didn't want those players and the the managers there it was they were bought by 
either Abramovich or the director of football that, that, that they, they've had for some time. But, you know, you look at their signings and that really, for me, sums them up the way the club has kind of evolved. There's no real pattern to what type of player they're getting or there doesn't seem to be a plan in place. And they've just, you know, they've gone through managers left, right and centre. Not only have they gone through managers, but they've also gone through different uh, football and genres of managers. You know, we got the Solari, which was, you know, Abramovich wanting to have a bit of fun here after the the effect of but ugly enough football to watch under Mourinho then you know what he kind of went deep with the players manager with the, with Di Matteo where pretty much the players were the manager and John Terry and, and a few other the players and you know Rafa was short term won a couple of cups um, you know there's been so many managers since where they're just going from style to style and you know usually a football club has a philosophy you know you think of a team and you know the, the a style of football comes to your mind straight away you ask me what way are Chelsea are like. I don't really know. Yes, I know Zari, Zari football, etc. Zari ball and all stuff. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. But he hasn't got his like. He will need a lot more time to implement his ideas. Like yeah. even everybody. I'm not just saying it, but look at look at Liverpool for instance. It's taken them a long time to to get Klopp's style of football, and he's had to go step by step by step. And each season there's been a slight tweak in the but a lot of the times in the formation but not only that in the, the actual style of football and the football Liverpool are playing now is nothing compared to the football that Liverpool played when Klopp took over mm. so Zari will need a bit more time there's, there's almost two things really with it in terms of Chelsea at the moment I, I watch them a lot uh, closely during the summer they happened to come over here and play a pre-season game I was against looking Arsenal, at, against actually, Arsenal yeah. and got, I got to cover it and you know you got you get to see them warts and all and you get to see all behind the scenes and you, it's, you know speaking to a lot of the, the Chelsea journals that follow them all the time and they're telling me about all the, the cost cutting that's going on behind, behind the scenes and you're thinking oh this is kind of a Bromwich kind of you know squeezing the last bit out and there was the whole well documented visa issues passport issues etc you know the talk is kind of the cl- he then he then he uh, rejected our you know decided against the proposed new stadium, etc. It looked like they were on a wind down and they were just going to, you know, the glory days of, of tossing the money around, the, the Celtic Tiger, whatever, are gone. But, you know, he gave, he gave Zari a, bit, a, bit, a decent bit amount of money and, you know, he's met some decent signings. Like, they're in fourth. I don't think at the start of the season we would have thought that Chelsea would have done as well. I didn't think from watching them closely. I think Zari's first couple of months have been... I think he's, he's, you know, he's succeeded. He's he's got better than what I thought he would. He's starting to drop a little bit now. A couple of bad results, particularly against the bigger teams that they've struggled. But you know, they're only what four points behind Tottenham, who by, all, by a lot of people are saying are having a great season. You know, you got to take some context in it. The only thing you will say is, and this is kind of for for your Arsenal team as well. United have had a horrendous start to the season, but oh, yet right, three points behind. Uh, yet are right behind. That's probably the most yeah. annoying thing. If that run hadn't happened, if that up chain hadn't happened, I think this conversation is slightly different. But I think to be fair to him, Desari, he needs more time to implement his ideas. His comments, though, after the game at the weekend, I do find a little strange, I have to say. As in... Well, the, yeah, the, go on, Joe. Yeah, well, it's just that, like, obviously, that the... Um, well, what did he say? What did he say at the, at the end of the game? It was something along the lines of... He said that the, the players don't have... That he can't motivate... Oh no, he said that they're very difficult to motivate the players. Um, he said that, uh, yeah, what's he? I am extremely angry, very angry indeed. This defeat was due to our mentality. This is something I can't accept. I thought we'd overcome this issue. I'm not happy at all. This group of players are extremely difficult to motivate. I mean, the Alex Ferguson school of management would tell you you don't do that publicly. You'd say it yeah, to them to their but faces. I, I think it didn't Conte do something similar after they lost three 0 to Arsenal and then they went on and won the league. But uh, I, I, I think the problem there is that, like, 
it's it's just and Chelsea fans seem to think that you know it's it's not a good look you know what looking on Twitter it's it's a bit early to be attacking the players um but I I think the biggest problem you know Chelsea would have been a club that actually would book the trends of club you know when you talk, look at clubs and you go oh well any club that changes their manager every season or two won't win anything. And Chelsea obviously booked that trend because they proved that if anything, you're better off to change your manager every season or two because you'll definitely go on and win a big competition. But uh, the biggest issue for themselves is while that has led to a lot of uh, triumph in the last uh, decade and a half or so, um, it's causing problems now because, I mean, they've bring they brought in yet another. Uh, good manager. I mean, they like and like. Even though, like I'm saying, uh, talking about the players, they do still have a decent squad, one of the strongest in the league. And obviously, Hazard and Kanté are two of the, if not two of the best players in the league. They probably get in any Premier League eleven. Um, but uh, but, but uh, the, the problem is, is that when you're chopping and changing managers, like like uh, Johnson was saying there, when you're chopping and changing managers, um, it means that there's no long-term strategy, and all you're doing is once one like. Perfect example is Olivier Giroud. I mean, he uh, Conte brought him in because Conte was going playing a certain style. But now with Sarri, Giroud is 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 a wasted like because Sarri doesn't really have a massive use for him. So he finds himself more often than not coming off from the bench or basically left out. And you're just left with you just it just seems that you're then you know like Sarri seems to have he's your man uh, is it Jorginho. Jorginho is, uh, yeah. is uh, he's quite uh, he seems to have done quite well but like I mean if you are going down the road of that he has this system and he rigidly wants to stick this to this system and buy the players necessary for this system well to win the competitions you need to be you know you need to have a lot of money to spend to get in the right player because uh, and then what happens if after a couple of seasons you know the same kind of rot sets in he decides to leave you know that this boredom it seems that, that the Chelsea has this big problem where after two or three years, this boredom sets in where the players are bored of the manager and the manager is bored of the club. Mm. And, um, and like, you can't just keep, you know, reinventing the wheel every three years. I mean, eventually something's going to happen that either the manager you bring in isn't good enough or you don't have the money to, re- to overhaul the squad yet again. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I think Abramovich probably, if in his dreams when he first came in, what he wanted Chelsea to look like, he's it's probably you'd have to go further up north and look at Manchester City, who, despite you know whatever issues are in around them, and ta- and also not even counting in the things they've done in the community around uh, Manchester, which Chelsea haven't yeah. quite done. Um, in terms of they always had this idea they wanted to play a certain style of football, and I think they always saw Pep Guardiola as kind of like the pinnacle of what yeah. they want to be. Now, what happens after Pep goes, I don't know. But I think that's what Abramovich always wanted, that kind of Barcelona-esque style of football, that idea but that so everybody a, kind of a, loves a, them, a, and it's a, never happened. He's never well, got he, it. He, no. he, he, made, he made the big mistake of interfering with the team. I mean, first time round, he ended up... Like, I mean, Mourinho... It was all going brilliantly for Mourinho first time round. And, like, fair enough, he started getting critical of it. But, like, what happened was, ultimately, Andrei Shevchenko was brought in, a player that Mourinho just didn't want. And who was finished pretty much at that point uh, as well. Yeah, you know, and like Chelsea, uh, I, I think, the, and then the, I don't know who was responsible for the signing of Torres, but you know, like there was 50 million paid for Torres and it was just like, what's, what, what's, what are we doing? Like, and I, I, that's the big difference between Manchester City and Chelsea in terms of if you're looking at super clubs in that like City have, have a very hands-off approach in, in, to that, to that. It's not, you're not, you're not being saddled with, play- I mean, initially, 
there was a bit of like scrambling around, let's buy loads of players that are worth lots of money to get a name for ourselves. But now they've evolved into the, you know, the, the method that works where players are identified to suit certain a certain agenda and that's the players they go after. And it's just felt that, you know, like Chelsea have done that at times, but then at other times it's like, you know, a bit like United in the last couple of seasons, let's just spend a load of money on this one player because, you know, it's a big signing. Yeah, whereas like the thing with uh, Chelsea, as you said, the owner probably interfered a bit, whereas City, the executives, so they brought in a lot of people who had connections to Barcelona who actually do all that groundwork. I mean, the actual owners in Abu Dhabi, they're quite hands off. I mean, they do the other stuff outside in terms of community, academy, etc., spend the money there, but they actually have football people looking after um, the situation. And that's the thing, really, compared to Chelsea, like there's one thing they've tossed and changed managers over, over the course of his of his ownership really at the club but they've never got a stable structure of kind of that step above so it's not quite your director of football but that board that manages the whole football club something as you said there Raf, something the City have done quite well and, and there's players that are identified like you have to watch yeah. their, their Well uh, and even like I'm mean, even like 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 sorry like if you're being a li- like I mean the one thing that he has been criticised for and a, and a few have been criticised for it is is the you know he's playing Kante and Hazard like which by a long way are their two best players out of position. I mean Hazard has gone on the record a couple I think a couple of times. More, yeah, more than a couple of times. I think most yeah, post match like, things he, when he's asked he, about he, playing up he front, want, yeah. like, he just doesn't want. He does not want to be a striker or a forward or whatever. Like he wants to be getting the ball. He doesn't want to be scoring it. And I mean while it is working to a certain extent, tight parts probably. When you're playing playing players out of position or players that are unhappy in their position, like now and again, you are going to get flat performances. Like to be honest, they had it, it, like the game against Arsenal. When Arsenal played well for a certain amount of time, it, it like a lot of it was well. Chelsea were just flat, and it reminds me a bit like in that in that in that like when Arsenal won three nil a couple of years ago in the season, Chelsea won the league. I mean, while Arsenal played well that night, Chelsea were really bad too. And it was there's an element of that too about it that Chelsea were just. It was one of those games where they turned up and they just weren't interested. And I see, interestingly, like I mean, since they had their their record, they're, they're gone a bit. Um, they're not gone that dissimilar to uh, to Arsenal, like Arsenal of old when it comes to playing the top six. I think their record is drawn three and lost six recently. Yeah, it's quite deplorable. But there's mm. two things really on there about Hazard in particularly. Yes, I know it mightn't be his favorite position, but. They have a chronic shortage of striker and a striker that fits the system at the moment. They just don't have it. I think Sarri's football, his team, etc. will be, it relies so heavily on having a, a striker that fits in the system. That's why he's going out and get Higuain. That's why, no doubt, if he's still in charge, he'll go and he'll spend big in the summer again on another striker. So I think Hazard really has to just shut up and just get on with it and, and play his football. Like, there's one of the biggest problems at Chelsea really is the player power. And, you know, they've, they've ran so many managers over the years. Like, Hazard is... On paper, in ta- in terms of talent, he's one of the best players in the league. But he just isn't performing to those levels, and he needs to. He he's become almost becoming a little bit of a problem for him. Like he's disappeared. Like his goals record. You know, he starts off the season wonderful. You know, everyone's hyping him up about being you know one of the best players in the league, and you know he's eyeing up that move to that move to Madrid. But he the last while his performances just haven't been good enough, and I I don't get it. I don't take it for one second that he doesn't like to. Like he he needs to be. He needs to just do his talking on the pitch and. Um, it's a but, it's a big problem, I think. I I think though it it does come back to it's a bit like you watch this. And uh, sorry, that three draws and six losses. Just to clarify, it's their away record rather than their home and away record. Away away games against top six teams. But just to go back, the the 
like it's a bit like the United situation, I think. I think like the thing about United was that like, I mean, they were playing a certain way and they had all these players that were like, you know, particularly their very best players like Pogba playing them in a certain way that they weren't happy with. And you kind of go, if you've got, you know, a phenomenal player, just just play the player wherever they want to play, wherever they're happiest playing, because if they've got the ability, they'll excel in that position. You know, I mean, I mean, I think that's that that's what's really working at United is that like there's nothing daft going on. The players are being played in the positions they're they're meant to play. They've been encouraged to take risks. And I mean, like if Hazard is like Hazard is a big player and if he is unhappy playing as a striker, well, then it would just make more sense to just play him where he wants to play, where he can actually affect the game. Yeah, but you just don't have any any other options to play in that I system. Know, um, I know. Like this is really where the manager has to grab the squad by the scruff of the neck and it's probably testament really towards the reaction of Zari afterwards and, you know, he was completely premeditated. Like, he went out, he did the interview in in Italian, you know, he was very clear. There's no loss of translation here. He was putting out a, a message and I'm I'm quite sure a lot of that message was focused to the likes, focused towards the likes of Hazard as well because his performance just isn't good enough and he, he needs to start putting in a shift and if it if he isn't, I'd you know, almost go towards the lines where you're better off selling him to Madrid and cashing in on the money and spending the money, you know, allocating around towards the rest of the team. You know, he's become that much of a problem for them. Yeah. Now, before getting to trailing George Best and also your uh, hardy defence of Liverpool, which is set to come, uh, one final thing. It's always something I kind of throw around in my own head sometimes, which is imagine a Premier League where Abramovich hasn't come in and just, you know, the amount, his arrival, obviously, it changed the Premier League, turned it upside down and you know, it affected, I think, the careers of Arsene Wenger or Liverpool as well, I think, to a degree, were yep. affected. Newcastle probably fell off a perch that they were on as well. Yep. But it's always something that I just, I always go back to and I just wonder, I just imagine what that Premier League, what the Premier League might have been like if first Chelsea didn't come and then, you know, City didn't, weren't inspired to be changed in the way they were. It's incredible, really, because you go back to pre Bromwich, the last game... Was Chelsea Liverpool? Was Chelsea yeah. Liverpool in the last day of the season at Stamford Bridge? Yes, Bergwijnkier. Yeah, yeah. In a battle for Champions League spot, the fourth place at the time. You know, the two it was two average teams neck to neck. Chelsea were always that team that you almost used to like as a kid because I was just yeah, fascinated I by actually, Zola. By Zola. I did like them to a degree. Um, you know, the Hullet. They had so many extravagant players you know they were very inconsistent that's why they never really won anything or were just hovering around won cups and things yeah, yeah. but they were they were an incredible team to watch and then you know it all changed after that didn't it yeah and then obviously for Arsenal it kind of knocked them off properly knocked them off a perch as well it was sorry, sorry, Rex. In what sense? Just uh, Abramovich's arrival, because obviously Arsenal were the, the, you know, they were the leading club just in that period. It was the summer well, of two thousand and three, and they obviously I, I, went on, did the invincible season, and then afterwards, yeah. Mourinho comes in, and Arsenal never have never actually got back to yeah, that level. Well, I, I think, I think it was unfortunate for, like you were saying, it was a bit of, it was unfortunate for Wenger in that he had a a long term plan to succeed with with Arsenal through you know youth signings, etc. And then with Chelsea's arrival on the market, it just it priced Arsenal out to an extent that they didn't foresee. I think that they had done all the math based on based on uh, previous seasons when they were deciding about buying the new stadium and how they could stay competitive. And then when Chelsea came along, it just it just brought a, a different um, perspective to the market. I mean, Wenger famously called it financial doping. And uh, it, 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 nobody saw it coming. And, and ultimately, yeah, uh, Arsenal never got back and even now like I mean despite the fact that they've moved to a big stadium etc Arsenal have never recovered in the sense that they could spend the money like Arsenal were 
you know, joint the the, the joint bigger spenders there for it. Like they they were able to give the big contracts. I, I mean, the Sol Campbell signing from free to to from Spurs. I mean, they wouldn't be able to do something like that now because they just said they don't have the money. So so they've they've never recovered from from Chelsea coming over and and throwing their weight around. But like at the same time, the market has changed yet again. I mean, obviously, as we were talking about, the market's changed now again. I mean, you do have City up there that are spending big, more, even more than Chelsea everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but but otherwise, I mean, Liverpool and Manchester United are you know they're not clubs that like have loads of money because they've been bought over by somebody that's wealthy. They're they're clubs that have they're spending big, but they're spending big based on their intake as well. You know. Yeah, well, um, I think the league probably at this point um, had there'd be no Chelsea in Manchester City. Probably would I think Spurs probably would have been in that top four long before as well, and maybe yeah. Newcastle wouldn't have gone through the problems they did. Obviously, Mike Ashley is a. Um, is obviously <laughs> I'll stop that Care, there careful now <laughs> but I think, uh, I think, Rio Ferdinand might be listening I, I think like it does show that these days you, you, the owner is an unbelievably important in a football club well uh, pre-financial fair play anyway I think that may have dimmed slightly because there are a certain limits it's obvious financial fair play obviously isn't as stringent that really? <laughs> yeah that's the thing it's not yeah. quite as stringent as I think the but, what but they I, wanted initially like if you if like you look at Newcastle and you look at all the potential in Newcastle and we've talked about it many a time before if Newcastle were taken over by an owner who was willing to spend even a small amount of money every year that would basically is willing to take a bit of a hit on the club you know, like I mean, because like Manchester City aren't obsessed with turning a profit or anything, but Newcastle's a club that should be finishing in the top seven or eight of the Premier League every season. Yeah, they I have mean, the stadium, they have the fan base, base, they have everything. The, the stadium, the fan base. I mean, they just need money, and like it does, it does show the difference an owner. Like you're not talking about like someone that's prepared to pump billions and billions, but somebody who is prepared to spend a bit of money to get to a certain standard and. I mean, like they're they're just a perfect example of a club that could be huge if if somebody had enough money to spend on them. Um, but th- like these days, I think, um, like the, while you will get, I I think unless you have you know like these days you, you do need you do need a bit an owner with a fair amount of financial backing to really compete. I think because even you listen them to Arsenal talking and they're on about how. We can only make loan signings in January, and I, I don't know how much money they'll have to spend in the summer. But I, I mean, it, it it seems that despite it, I, I, it's hard to fathom. But like, despite the the massive money they get from TV, the big stadium, uh, the merchandise, it, it, the money you spend on players' wages, it's it's like obviously must be eating a lot of it because it, it's very difficult to go out and spend 60 or 70 million on a player. Yeah, and you're talking agent fees and things as well that we don't even Ozzel's, think about. Yeah, those yeah. big wages nibbling away at Arsenal's. Uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Kitty. yeah, well, maybe we'll see maybe Jeff Bezos or however you pronounce it, the Amazon owner, he's supposed to be the richest man in the world, maybe he'll take over well, Newcastle. You know, What's Donald Trump if, doing if, after if, he leaves <laughs> office? If, if the, <laughs> I don't if think the, Newcastle fans want him, but if, anyway. If the Rams win the, uh, win the Super Bowl, you know, they might have a bit, Arsenal might have a bit more spending money. Possibly, yeah. Uh, yeah, possibly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't see it. <laughs> but anyway, um, we're just going to play out an interview now with, uh, or just with the authors of Trailing George Best. And then afterwards, um, 
there's Liverpool to be talked about. Obviously, Jonathan Higgins is in the studio. So here are the authors. Okay, so there is a new book called Trailing George Best, The Manchester Haunts of United's Greatest. It's a different way of looking at George Best's life and career, I guess. It takes it away a bit from the football, which would be the general way of looking at it, and actually looking at his life and uh, career through the um, the buildings and homes he would have stayed in in and around Manchester. And the co-authors of that book are Stuart Bolton and Paul Collier, who both uh, join me on the line. Yeah, absolutely fine, Raph. Hope you're well too. Very well indeed, thank you. Okay, good stuff. Um, Stuart, I might start with you actually just on the, uh, the subject of the book. And I mean, most football biographies, autobiographies, and I suppose exposés about former players would uh, maybe focus more on the playing side. You've taken a very different route with this. Um, so what inspired this look at maybe more of the the buildings, locales and homes that uh, George Best stayed in? Uh, it actually came, uh, the book came about as uh, kind of a, a bit of a fluke in that I've known Paul for about 20 years and I know that he's got um, an incredible collection of uh, George Best scrapbooks, etc. Uh, I, I do a bit of drawing on the side and I emailed Paul to ask if he had any uh, old pictures of Edwardia, best uh, second boutique or the first one in the centre of Manchester. Um, Paul kindly got back to me and said, um, leave that with me, I'll have a look through my scrapbooks. Um, but I have thought that this is Paul. Um, Paul wrote and said, I did think that uh, somebody some, somewhere should... Um, chronicle the places in Manchester connected with George simply because, you know, he had three boutiques, two nightclubs, uh, was well known to be uh, quite a sociable creature. Um, so I emailed back, uh, Paul back and said, are you actually proposing a, a project together? And Paul emailed back, well, no, not really, but when I come to think of it. So it, it kind of came about as a fluke. Uh, we know that most of George Best's life and career has been covered um, in all sorts of books, uh, but certainly the places in Manchester was was an area that we didn't think had been uh, comprehensively covered. Yeah. So it was a great opportunity, really, to look yeah. into that Indeed. aspect of his life. Yeah, and Paul, um, I suppose from your point of view, you, um, I think you were involved with two of his autobiographies as well. You knew him personally um, as well. And of course, Best is born in Belfast. He moves over as a teen. Um, in terms of the place Manchester holds in his I suppose in his life, how deeply did it kind of that city touch him? And I suppose not just the city, but that area around him, because it obviously takes in Salford, Moss Side, and other areas. Yeah, I mean, I think George came to regard Manchester as being his second second city, his second home uh, after Belfast, and uh, it was just a place that uh, obviously was very, very dear to his heart. Uh, he lived in the, in and around the, the city for uh, about fifteen years, so his association there was uh, very much long term. Yeah, and he arrived in 1961 um, in Manchester and like a lot of young footballers, stays at Diggs. Um, can you t- tell us just a little bit about Mrs. Uh, Mary Fullaway because she seems to play quite an important part in his life, particularly in that period. Yeah, um, he went into uh, into Diggs um, initially with another young lad. Uh, it's been well documented that he travelled over with another youngster called Eric Mamordi. Um They got over from Belfast, they got to, to Manchester. Um, I think they were very uh, phased by the size uh, of the whole experience, and uh, they literally went back within a day. Um, they they travelled home, and I think they decided um, they talked between themselves, and they decided it really wasn't for them. Um, they went back, um, and um, basically, um, George's dad managed to talk George into going back. They did a little bit of negotiating um, with with Samat, and uh, George was invited to go back uh, about a week later. 
then went into uh, digs with um, with Mrs. Fullaway, and uh, George became very, very close to her. And um, throughout his life and throughout uh, Mary Fullaway's uh, life, George very much regarded uh, Mrs. Fullaway as being his second mum, actually. Mm. Um, the the kind of interesting thing as well, because when you think of digs, you kind of think of them as short-term places, and then once uh, the wages start coming in, the player moves out into their own home. But um, it seems he was still living there at least up until 1968, moves out slightly, and then even comes back in in the mid-70s when you kind of think he would have, um, even if you remain friends with Mrs. Fullaway, you would have thought um, his life would have taken him into moving out somewhere else. Absolutely. I mean, obviously he had his ill-fated time when he had um, his own futuristic uh, house, um, built in, in Woodford, Woodford in the Cheshire countryside. But it's quite amazing to think now that this superstar footballer was basically living in this uh, very small council house um, in Manchester. It, it was certainly wasn't something that would happen now. It was, as I say, it was really quite a remarkable thing that, that George stayed in that house uh, pretty much from his arrival in, uh, in 61 uh, in Manchester, really till things started to fall uh, apart from, uh, for George in the mid-70s. Um, so he was there for for uh, an awful long time in that little house. Yeah, and I suppose Stuart, um, the the point where he's there, he obviously arrives at the start of the sixties. Um, I'm much younger than that age. I I I can only look back at the sixties through the rubric of history books and maybe Beatles records and things like that. But it seems it's a period of social change. So it's interesting. He's in a city like Manchester as well that's kind of going through that in and around the same time. Yeah, that's right. Um... When you think about it, it's kind of um, it's quite spooky, really, that George, someone that ended up being, you know, um, popular with the ladies, very charismatic, so good looking, uh, into clothes, into music, came along at that particular time. Um, that this was a time when beat bars started opening in the cities. Um, there was no drink involved in that that time, by the way. It was these were like milk bars or. Uh, they got by by drinking coke. Uh, music came about. All sorts of bands that uh, we mention in the book, actually, that went on to great things. Um, members of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, as you mentioned, the Beatles. All these were performing um, quite industriously uh, within Manchester City Centre at the time, as I'm sure they were in other cities, Liverpool, London, obviously, and uh, various other major cities in the British Isles. Um, and George was sort of at the centre of that, um, albeit anonymously at first, but of course he became quite a prominent figure um, throughout the land as a result of not only his footballing skills, but um, you know he was uh, football's first superstar, very popular with a lot of attractive, famous uh, actresses, etc. Mm. Um, and it's a hell of a story when you think about it. Yeah, there's even an Irish connection there because there's a you speak about a um a, an establishment uh, goes by the name of Phyllis's and uh, it's actually Phil Linnett uh, who would be the front man of Tin Lizzy. Um, I actually I've, I've I've actually met well not met his mother in person but I've spoken to her over the phone. So there's that little connection as well. But um, there's this little haunt he used to go to. The interesting thing as well, it used to be I think associated with kind of West African West Indies um, people initially. So it's an interesting thing there in terms of the social mix as well. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. I mean, so these were, uh, um, I think they were illegal, illicit drinking bars that were open late at night. Uh, George liked to go and kind of, although he was known about town, I think he liked his, uh, to be not an- anonymous because that was impossible, but he would go to bars where he wouldn't be pestered so much. So uh, he often drunk in the uh, Shabines, as they were called, around Moss Side and Wally Rain. Yeah, that's the Nile and Club, isn't it, as well? Yeah, the Nile Club in uh, Moss Side, uh, 
Philis's, as it was called, although it was uh, named after uh, Philomena Lynott, Phil yeah. Lynott's mother. She ran a, a late night drinking den that uh, I believe anyone that used to work in town, croupiers and people that worked in nightclubs, they all fancied a drink later on. So they would all head there. Uh, apparently, it was, uh, well, it was downstairs, so there was no window, so people weren't aware what time of the day it was. And they'd often find themselves there till like six or seven o'clock in the morning. And it doesn't sound like anything like any hell raising going on. I think it was just a nice place where people felt comfortable with each other's company in there. Yeah. And uh, Paul, just through the early parts of the book, particularly when we're discussing Mary Fullaway as well, and when he's living in that house and he's with his uh, kind of roommate, David Sadler as well. And there, I think Sadler makes the point to you guys that he didn't particularly like staying in. It's not particularly a surprise when you look at how his life uh, um, went on during the 60s and 70s. But it was quite interesting even early on as a teen when he's first arrived, he actually wants to kind of go out, go to the bowling alley, which seems to be the place um, to be at that time. Yeah, I think he liked George liked to get out to really to 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 where the action was. Really, I don't think he necessarily played bowling very much, but I think that he just liked to sit, be amongst people, and just basically to observe surroundings. Um, so that was he was very much uh, a people watcher. I think George, but um, I think um, even though he loved um, he loved the safety and the security of being with uh, with Mrs. Fullaway, uh, I think sometimes he felt that perhaps the, the walls were closing in on him a little bit, and he needed to get out a little bit into bigger environments where there was a lot more happening. Yeah, um, although there was a lot happening even in that house. Uh, there's a story about the dog, I think, which uh, he used in uh, some of his fan mail. Oh yeah, that was a very uh, interesting little anecdote that was brought to us uh, by the, the political journalist uh, in England, uh, Michael Crick. Uh, Michael told us that uh, sometimes um, when uh, female fans would uh, would write to George asking um, if they could have a lock of his hair, um, George would famously uh, cut off um, some of the hair from the, the dog that uh, Mrs. Fullaway owned and lived at the house and um, he returned the hair to the fans and Michael thought it was quite funny that now there are, are females out there, uh, probably in their seventies, who who have been showing people locks of George's hair, not realizing that the hair is actually <laughs> taken from uh, George's uh, landlady's uh, dog. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the only thing I can take away from that is the dog must have had really nice hair as well, because uh, <laughs> they couldn't tell the difference. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, the um, outside of that as well, um, and it's something actually when I think when I was reading Brilliant Orange, which is by David Winner about uh, Dutch football, but there's a bit about Johan Cruyff in there as well. And he used to have a pretty much a day job. Well, again, he wasn't expected to do too much. I think he used to work in a printing industry kind of place, but it seems Best had to kind of do the same as well when he was when he first started out in Manchester. So he was at the Manchester Ship Canal Company. That's right, it was. Yeah, he used to work in one of the, uh, the, the dock offices and he used to do uh, errands uh, running uh, backwards and forwards into, into Manchester. And uh, I believe um, he also had a little time working at, at printers as well. Um, and the, 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 the youngsters there were very much obligated back in the day that they had to go and uh, do uh, little jobs. Um, I don't think it was um, something that George particularly liked because basically he was just there in his own mind for one reason, and that was to play football. Mm. And uh, I suppose, Stuart, as well, like you, bring, you brought in the football side because, of course, he said, as you said, um, the, uh, he didn't particularly like maybe working in those kind of regular jobs. But you do talk about the cliff later on in the book towards the end. And that's obviously the famous Manchester United training ground of that era. And uh, it seems and maybe people would be surprised by, it, but probably not, given the talent he showed and how effective he was as a player. 
in the 60s at the time they were winning the European Cup. He was a hard trainer. Oh, very much so. Yeah, he could keep up with the best of them. Um, and whilst, um, say, after 68, um, you know, he enjoyed uh, socialising, etc., etc., um, I think it, it's testimony, really, to the training that he put in that um, this didn't affect his performances. It, it was, um, what, 72, 73, uh, where he started, um, you know, to struggle with that. But basically, he, was, he, he's a, he trained as hard as uh, anyone at the club, and a lot of the players have said that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, obviously an enormously talented footballer, but, you know, you do have to put the work in. You still have to keep, keep up with the, uh, the rest of the players on the pitch. And, and George could just, George could run endlessly. In fact, there's stories in, in the book as well about when he uh, fell out of favour at the club. He still kept himself fit at the YMCA in Manchester, yeah. and he could race faster than you know your regular <laughs> Joe on the street that uh, might try and keep fit themselves. George could run faster than them backwards, and we, we, you know we've had that from a story. Colin Byrne, one of his business partners, that had a hand in uh, Black Alice and Oscars. So um, you know he, he enjoyed keeping himself fit, George. Um, he enjoyed his late nights, but he enjoyed keeping fit. Yeah, it was interesting as well, and maybe you wouldn't think it would happen now, given, you know, tribal loyalties within the city, but um, he seemed to hang out a bit with Mike Summer- Summerby as well, um, from the Manchester City side of the, uh, the divide of the city. Um, absolutely, yeah. In fact, they're, they're, you know, United's, fan, uh, United's players and City's players, they, they socialised a great deal. They might have, like, uh, been kicking 10 tons out of each other on a Saturday afternoon, but, you know, they socialised a lot. There was a lot of City players at George's house warming at Kesarat, um, as his house became known. Um, and a lot of United players, or certainly one or two anyway, went to uh, Mike Summerby's wedding. So, um, and, and, and indeed, Stag do. So they were, they were very close-knit. They were all good buddies, really, mm. um, for a period. And then, obviously, times changed. Yeah, and I suppose, Paul, um, in terms of these places that... Uh, you kind of pass through within the book and all the different, whether it's a workplace establishment, home, and then more football-related places. Are there, did you get, did, were you kind of getting signs maybe of people opening up maybe about concerns they would have had about or about um, George's lifestyle um, in that period? Or did those concerns um, manifest themselves maybe more after the time he left uh, Manchester United? Yeah, I think the concerns very much came later on, Raph. Uh, I think he was just he was just very much uh, accepted, and uh, just uh, the, the people that were with him were just all having a really a really great time. Um, I think it was just it would have been a wonderful period um, to have been around um, in Manchester. While I was born um, and I was in Manchester at that time, I was just I was very very young, and uh, unfortunately, it all happened way be beyond sorry way before my time, which which made us researching and finding out. Uh, in depth about these places far more interesting uh, both to Stuart and me yeah and in terms of these places now and what they look like um, uh, Manchester obviously has changed quite a bit in terms of its the face it presents but uh, how drastic has the change been and how many of those places are still standing now uh, well, the, tra- the change obviously has been very uh, dramatic. Um, Any time that you go into the city, uh, the- there's always parts of it that are, that are changing. There's always something that's going on in Manchester. There always seems to be endless cranes that are on the skyline uh, as new buildings uh, are erected. Um, but just to answer your point uh, about the, the buildings, uh, many of them are still standing, actually. Obviously, um, quite a lot of them have, uh, have changed uh, guys. For example, um, George's first... Uh, 
boutique that uh, he opened in uh, in sale that is now uh, an estate agent prior to that it was a bookmaker's uh, the second uh, boutique that he had is now a, a pizza restaurant before that it was a coffee shop um, the famous uh, snooker hall in Chalton um, is now a, a, a public house um, owned by a, a very large um, brewery um, so while some of these buildings have uh, have gone certainly um, an awful lot of them uh, um, still stand with, which is nice because obviously we were able to visit them and uh, and photograph them for the book. Yeah, uh, Stuart, um, just uh, I suppose from my own point of view, sometimes the way I might get to know a city is through the music scene and for Manchester, it'd probably be that post-punk era where um, you had a few bands like Joy Division kind of coming through and then later on the Smiths and that. So it, they, I, maybe it's just the music, but kind of presented a slightly bleak um <laughs> I suppose a bleak kind of perception of what Manchester was in those kind of late seventies, early eighties, and in terms of the actual change in reality, um, what kind of happened to Manchester in that period from the late seventies, or maybe more the mid seventies onwards, and then in terms of how that's completely how different that looks to the period when George was there. Um, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, really. I, mean, I was a teenager during the years that you mentioned, late seventies, Joy Division. Uh, Tony Wilson, obviously, was our Anthony H. Wilson, as he, he latterly became known. <laughs> um, he, he had a huge part to play in that, as you'll be aware, Raph, if you're in, you know, knowledgeable about the music around the town. Um, kind of interesting how it became so bleak, really, but I agree with you. That just seems to be that late 70s uh, feel. Certainly, it came out in uh, bands like Joy Division's music. And yet before then, it was only, what, Seven, six years uh, earlier, it seemed to be quite a party town, to be honest. I think because of George's high profile um, and his associates, people used to visit the town just to simply see the places that George used to hang out. Uh, We mentioned uh, Rod Stewart uh, actively sought out uh, George at Slack Alice, uh, George's nightclub. Then there was Elton John, Mick Jagger, you know, People, real big names. Um, I could go on and on and on, to be honest. Television stars, film stars. Yeah. All of a sudden, Manchester became, you know, pretty much, I would think, comparable with London in terms of the late late swinging 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Paul, um, just in terms of the, and maybe touching on that point in terms of celebrities moving around and a lot of these kind of haunts that some are not there now, but you wouldn't imagine a lot of the Manchester United players kind of hanging around the city as much because of the way social media and things work now. And there's a certain level of privacy that's needed. There's tabloids that have developed in a way since that period. There seemed to be a sense of freedom, really, for George moving around the, the city and the different places at that time. That's right, Ralph. I mean, I, I certainly don't think... Uh the, 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 the superstar footballers of today are in, a, in any way as accessible as they were back in the in the 70s. Uh, I mean, George used to freely move around the city, but that said, uh, Stuart mentioned before, if George didn't want to be found, then he would have places where he could uh, disappear to and uh, nobody would find him. Um, there was one particular place that was brought to our attention um, by um, a guy that we uh, we found, we discovered, that had been a DJ at uh, the Slack Alice uh, nightclub. And he told me uh, about this place uh, in the city centre called the Auto Club. And uh, I'd never heard of it. Um, Stuart had never heard of it. Many other people I spoke to had never heard of it. But apparently it was a place um, that was a word-of-mouth place. 
and um, it was a place that George would go to basically just to escape everything. He would go down, he could have a meal, he could have a few drinks, he could hang out with a few of his friends, and he could basically become um, as anonymous as it was possible for George Best to become anonymous back in the day. Yeah. Um, I suppose a final point to both of you, whoever wants to answer, but in terms of the reaction to the book um, so far, and uh, even from extracts and things like that, uh, how have you found it? Do you want to answer that? Um, yeah, difficult, difficult to say, to be honest there, uh, Raph. We've not uh, been in touch with the publishers lately, so we don't know how sales are going, but certainly word of mouth, um, everyone that I've spoken to, you know, a lot of my pals at work have bought the book or bought um, uh, the book for relatives for Christmas, etc. There's been a lot of favourable um, feedback. But I must tell you one story, actually, that's just come to mind. Uh, my yeah. girl, a friend of my girlfriend, she bought three books for uh, two of her sons and her mother. And her mother, who was uh, a contemporary of George, she actually uh, broke down in, uh, into tears a couple of times simply because it brought back so many happy memories for her um, and the places she used to hang about were the same places that George used to go. And so much so that um, a friend of hers is in hospital at the moment. So she went along and actually uh, visited and started reading passages from the book because, you know, we like to think that we've done quite some quite good research in there. and. Uh, People like my dad, uh, he would have been a similar age to George. He said, oh, I forgot about that place. And, um, oh, yeah, we used to go there and not not thought about that place for years. So it's nice to, nice to hear, really, that people are uh, really enjoying reading the book. We often forget just how quickly the face of a city can change. Like, I'm a good, good bit younger, so, uh, well, than that kind of generation. So I haven't really seen as much of that change. But even now, you know, sometimes a pub will disappear. You don't think of it, but I guess maybe in 20 years' time, I'm kind of going to look at it and kind of go, wow. Um, what a time to be alive uh, right now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's yeah. something, sorry, Paul, it's something that no. uh, the older you get, the, the more you um, experience those feelings. And nostalgia is, yeah, you get to a certain age where it, it becomes a, quite a big thing, really, for um, a lot of people. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I think, uh, I think Stuart and I would both agree that we would have both have loved to have been in Manchester uh, possibly um, 10 years or 15 years older than we are now to have fully uh, appreciated just the, the buzz and the vibe that was in Manchester, uh, certainly with uh, George very much at his, his peak during those years and uh, all the excitement that, were, that was going on uh, in the, uh, the mid-60s, uh, early 70s. I think it would have been a wonderful time. Yeah, and certainly it's all captured in the book and through all the different uh, addresses, locations, workplaces and of course the cliff and other, you know, some of the stadiums and places he would have played in the Manchester area. So the book is Trailing George Best, the Manchester haunts of United's greatest. Stuart Bolton and Paul Collier, thanks a million for uh, taking the time to chat to me. Thank you very much. Absolutely, pleasure, uh, Raph. So enjoyable talking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Uh, just speaking there to the authors of Trailing George Best, an interesting way of looking at George Best's career through the buildings he either lived in, worked at, or just spent time in. Um, so Jonathan Higgins, as we said, you have a defence of Liverpool. Now, I'm not sure what exactly you can defend here unless I was about to say, it's this, a Sean Spicer-style defence. Yeah, this, this got launched me today about lunchtime. So there's a couple um, of things. The handball for Robertson, and then yeah. obviously there's been a lot of focus on Salah and diving. So you have the floor. I have the floor, have I? Well, firstly... Before we get into all the nitty gritty stuff, there's a there's a number of different types of victories that you need to even challenge for, uh, challenge to compete for for a Premier League title. And 
the weekend just gone by was the definition of one of those games where it's one of those games where you're not playing at your best. There's multiple things going away from you. Like Crystal Palace have three shots in goal. It's three goals. It felt like the end of the world. It's the definition of a game that Liverpool would have lost many, many times in games gone by, in years gone by. So take but, me back to the Carrius Bournemouth game. Yeah, four was that four three. I four think three. Yeah. yeah. Um. There's multiple of those, and this game had two or three of those type of scenarios where the ground would have caved in. But this this team is different. There's a lot more character in this in the team. Klopp compared them to Warriors that that's probably a bit of an over-exaggeration you know you saw how emotional he was after the game this was or this could be a very defining win it's not the type of victory you need every week but you will need one or two of these over the course of the season there's a couple of issues that have been highlighted to me there's okay we'll we'll speak about Salah first look diving over-exaggeration the game is is a curse of the game for quite some time now and it's becoming more and more and more of an issue and the biggest problem I have with it is there's various opinions <laughs> and overreaction on different types of players. We've seen some Tottenham players go over-exaggeration but it seems to be a little more quiet. Like Kane is the he is a pro at manufacturing contact of a goalkeeper and up into him. But he's the golden boy. But he is the golden boy, etc. Deli Ali is, is all over Zaha, for instance. How many times, multiple times have we seen? But they doesn't seem to get the same exposure. There's one BBC match of the day pundit who there was an iffy enough penalty given against his team a couple of weeks ago and it seems to really have pushed him over his, his edge really and he's given him a vendetta to to attack Sal and you even see him on social media. He's probably lapping up. He's probably having a good laugh at the end of the day. It's one of those where I have to take you back to, I think it's last season, I can't remember the game, but there's one time where Salah gets clipped and the same pundit goes, uh, oh no, and he stays in the feet, he doesn't get the penalty, the chance is gobbled up. And he's like, oh no, you have to go down. You you know, you if you don't get, the, if you feel the contact and you don't go down, you can't get the penalty given to you. So Salah has pretty much learned from that and then he's crossed the line with it this season. There's yeah. been a there's been a couple of ones where actually just on that Joe as well there's no consistency really from pundits as well because I have seen as you've just made that point Jonathan about the uh, the fact that either oh look maybe you should go down in that situation and then when they do go down yeah. it's uh, like all hell well, breaks I, loose I, I I think a lot of that is because the pundit just completely forgets that they probably criticised him slash you know praised him for the same thing last season in that like. I mean, like you're saying there, that the same pundit is criticising him now after the weekend that was saying he should go down. I mean, a lot of it is the fact that they just forget what they said, you know. And I this... mean, you're, you're literally, rea- you know, you know that kind of way where, where they're, they're, they're... <laughs> like in my opinion, I, I mean, it's so old these days. I don't really care whether Salah is diving or not. I mean, it's everybody does it it just makes no odds to me like Joe that. will have a good night's sleep either way whether Salah is a diver well, or not well like I mean like <laughs> if you see Salah diving you're like sure everybody dives what's the sure like what's the big deal what's the point criticising for it if you know like everybody does it and like I'm not saying it's right but it's part and parcel of the game and it's not going to be going away anytime soon so you know, I, I wouldn't think any fans are really getting that upset by it. Well, of course, if it's your team, you're not going to get upset. If it's done against you, you're going I to be going through, going through the roof. But I do think, just to take it one step more, I think there is one issue here that we haven't really discussed yet, which is a huge factor in scenarios like this. It's a standard of the match refereeing and the inconsistency of, of a lot of match officials we've seen over the last couple of years. Like, I've, I've said it many, many times before, you have world-class managers, you have world-class players, but you don't have world-class referees particularly in the premiership and uh, I, I, I don't agree you don't, with you don't agree with that no? no I think the standard well, of, of officiation in general in the Premier League is terrible 
Who's the best referee? None of them out of the World Cup squad. Oh, yes. Okay, fair enough. I think, like, I mean, it's, you see, like, like you can't really, you can't, you're not comparing like with like because the Premier League is a, is a, an open market. So you can, you can import the best managers in the world. You can import the best players in the world. I mean, all the referees are from Britain. I mean, you can't import the best referees. Talk of an Australian dude coming in. I saw read a headline earlier on today. He was supposed yeah, to I, make I, him make an appearance. I don't think we'd be seeing headlines of uh, one X league <laughs> triggers the buyout clause of X referee from a foreign league. I don't see that happening. But yeah, I I I, I just think it comes down to the same stuff and like the same complaints in Gaelic football in that. You can't like like the whole argument because uh, 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 I, I I saw I saw you tweeting about the I think you were, you were tweeting about the FBD final on Sunday. Um, but, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah wasn't DJ. Yeah, yeah, like like I I you you can't. My problem with all, all that, and it's the same for the Premier League. You can't expect one person to be able to look after so much going on in the pitch. Like Gaelic football is is like my big issue with the rules in Gaelic football to go off for, for a minute was purely because. You're leaving the referee with far too much to do. I mean, Jesus, there are so many rules in Gaelic football already. Now you're going to throw a load more onto them. Expect that the referee is watching for off the ball stuff, yet watching how many steps and how many times the player has passed the ball with his hand. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Same with soccer. I mean, the Premier League is so fast. And it's actually, you know, like we all know that, that really, okay, it's a certain speed on TV, but Christ almighty, when you're watching it in the flesh, it's on another level altogether. And, and I think it's a big ask to be asking referees to keep up with play to be watching for all the stuff that's going on with them and expect them to make split-second decisions and get them right. And that's why, I mean, they're banging on there about video referees saying they do more harm than good. Video referees are, are, are the future if you want a game where there are no mistakes. And I, I really don't like, I mean, referees now are fitter than they've ever been. I mean, they take more classes than they've ever taken before. Uh, the, the referees today are definitely the best they've ever been. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any argument against that. It's just that like, because the game is everywhere now, and and we've been saying it for a few years. Everything is highlighted so much more. It just you feel that they're worse, but really they're actually better than they ever been before. That's my take on it. Yeah, know? and that's, anyway, that's... the percentages generally, I think I, from what I've seen, like in terms of correct decisions, it's into the nineties. So you're, yeah, like, and mean, they they are human anyway. At the end of the day, uh, so like, you're going to make a mistake. Like it's just the game is so different now, and like you know, it's one person been asked to make a split second decision in a game that is faster and stronger than it's ever been before. And I just think that, uh, I, I, I just think that to be, to expect anything else at this stage, and it, like at the end of the day, like we're talking about players feigning and dive, players diving, all pain and injury, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you're, you're trying to think along all those lines as well, not to mention the pressure of the crowd. I think that, I, I think that, I don't think we can expect anything more from referees. Now, final point, Jonathan, Robertson Carlos, or better known as Andy Robertson as well. Mm. There was the little handball. There was. Well. I have to confess, it took me a couple of times to watch it back to notice it. Um, it was one of those that happened so quick. Um, it took me a couple of a couple of replays. It no doubt touched his hand. Uh, and he did quite well with a you know, big lunge, but it definitely it got the rub of the green with that. Um, what I would say is that's the one that gets highlighted. But, you know, for the Palace second goal, Van Dijk has fouled. It should have been a free out. Mm. He's been gotten a bear hug. There's the Thomas handball in the penalty box in the first half. This this decisions have gone either way. What I will say over the course of that game against Palace, and I'm not I'm speaking in a more general term than just the refereeing decisions. Liverpool got the the rub of the green in that in that game. You know, you the goalkeeper mistake for the third. Whisperoni. Uh, um, mm. where where else? Um, the Firmino's shot gets a big deflection. It's going one. It may have gone in the bottom left hand corner, but it, it took a deflection across. Goes the other corner. 
The first one is Van Dijk has taken a Hail Mary shot. Now Salah does exceptionally well to read it and it's a difficult enough finish. And then the last one um, has, the, has the handball and, you know, it's one of those stretch where Robinson, you know, sprinted so well. I don't know how he kept it in, but he just about kept it in. And again, maybe the keeper should have done a little better as well, but it's it's hit hard enough for person. So no doubt, don't get me wrong, Liverpool totally deserved to win that game, I thought. Um, but they definitely got the rub of the green on a couple of number of things and long may continue. <laughs> That's a sterling defence of uh, Liverpool Football Club. Anyway, I think that almost brings us to an end. The only thing I have to announce is uh, Monday I will be playing in a charity match. It's for a good cause as well, the Irish Heart Foundation. You might have heard Kevin Kilban uh, going through all the members of the teams on the off-the-ball news round. Uh, the Colchi team, or the rest of Ireland, to give it its uh, <laughs> official name, and then the Dublin team. I was initially placed in the Dublin team for no reason whatsoever, but I loudly uh, protested in the office and I've been moved back to my rightful place in the culture team. So please wish me luck because I'll actually need it. <laughs> you, I think I've played five aside with you before, Joe, but back in college, like, and I don't uh, think, I'm, I'm not a good footballer. I think that's that's just fair to say. Let's just put just that make sure you ex- over-exaggerate any contact in the yeah, penalty well, area. That, There's no referee <laughs> as far as I know that's actually... I, 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 was no, uh, I was no linchpin or anything, but yeah, I, I I, I do remember you struggled in some situations on the pitch. I struggle with <laughs> fitness, ability, uh, <laughs> determination and grit. <laughs> I don't think I'll need all four, three or four of them. If I can get one of them, I should be okay. But I'm on Kevin Kilban's team and Brian Kerr is my manager, so I'm happy enough with that. Uh, well, you've got a good setup there, you know. Yeah, I think I have a feeling I'm not going to be starting either. I'll probably be coming on as, a, as an impact sub, making no impact whatsoever, but there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. We have a strong culture team anyway, so I expect they should be able to bail me out as well. You need to, you, you'll, bring the, you'll bring the flair to the pitch, Raph. I, I, was, I thought you were about to say you're going to bring the ham sandwiches and you'll be sorted. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I'll bring Raph, ham sandwiches. I, I, mean, I mean, Raph, like, I mean, you'll bring the, you'll, you'll bring the, the exquisite touch that the game might be missing. Uh, I've been told I look like Ruth Hullet, so I'm hoping I have the same like, touch. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't expect too much. I just, uh, I don't, I lost my first touch in primary school and then some of the other skills that are necessary for the game in Giraffe, secondary school. You know, you know yourself now, half a footballer is about looking the part. That is the thing. I will look the part. I'm going to be in a ah, Leitrim yeah. jersey. I mean, like, I'll... I mean, like, if anyone sees you moving around the pitch with those dreadlocks, then straight away going. <laughs> I'm going to bring a headband just for the crack <laughs> as well. <laughs> Hopefully a green one or something. Actually, bring the headbands and then the the, 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 the look will be completed. Yeah, and I think I have to wear like glasses so I can't, because I can't see. Go so I'm going to go Edgar, Edgar, Edgar Davids. You need to go, yeah. need to go Edgar Davids-esque and have those massive wraparound specs on. Exactly. No, that's the plan. Like He is a friend of the show because he's been on this show before. Yeah. Um, more against his will, but he did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar <that's>, means Edgar. <laughs> but anyway, that is it for this week's show. We'll see what form I'm in next Tuesday having won... Um, a very important game and as I said it's for the Irish Heart Foundation so for, for a very very good cause Joe Coffey thanks for joining us Raph pleasure as always Jonathan Higgins thank you very much take it away Johan. Oh,